Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Scott Seven Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you were able to tune in last week, we, uh, Micah and I have been breaking down uh, Hillsong Exposed, the uh, Discovery Plus docuseries. And today we're going to talk about episode two. So Micah, again, thanks for being back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always, uh, so it's always a good time with Scott Stedman. Oh, yeah, I don't know about that, but I appreciate it. Not the good time that they were having at Hillsong Church. But, oh, no, 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 no. No, not a good. It's definitely not a good time. I guess it used to be a good time at Hillsong Church, but it was under a fog. And, yes. and really what we see in episode two is we kind of see not only. Even though it kind of primarily focuses on Carl Wentz and his background and his story and, and his fall from grace, but we also get to see a little bit uh, kind of the fog dissipate over Hillsong as a global entity. Um, mm. So one of the first questions as we see these this episode two open up, um, it talks a lot about not only Carl's affair, uh, but really his hypocrisy, especially his teaching on purity and uh, with his uh, purity and and sex with other couples, uh, so my question is not necessarily a thing about Carl, but why is it that we see pastors preach on topics that they seem to struggle with? Because that was kind of one of the big things that uh, people said. Even one of the interviewees that was being interviewed said, "Man, he kept talking about you know." don't have sex before marriage, don't have sex before marriage. And the first thought this guy thinks of, man, this guy must've had a lot of sex before marriage. Like, so why, why is it that ministers seem to have an issue with preaching against something, especially something that they struggle with? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, um, Scott. And it seems to be a pattern, doesn't it? Like, it just seems to be like, uh, you know, whether it's drug addiction, alcohol, sex, whatever that may be, um, pastors, leaders, teachers, whoever tend to have problems with those issues. And, and I guess my immediate answer is because they have experience in it. Mm. You know, it's, it's like an addict, right? You know, what is an addict? Why is an addict an addict, right? Like, because they've, <laughs> they've abused that over the course of time and uh, they they continue to struggle with it even when they, they become sober and clean. Um, it was really bizarre to see Carl's story kind of unraveled, especially in episode two. Um, it made me uncomfortable, to be honest with you, to, to see, you know, some of these people come forward, especially I think it was the couple that they, um, they admitted to living together. And they admitted mm-hmm. to having sex before marriage. And then they, Carl, they had some like outlandish resolution for them that they had to like spend a year apart. And I'm like, how is that going to fix your sex before marriage? Or do you want to be married? And like, could you just get married and, you know, yeah. repent of that sin and move on? Um, it just, it just seems to be a trend with, with people that struggle with any sort of addiction. And, you know, in this case, you know, womanizing or, or or sex or any of those things can be an addiction and in Carl's case I think it was mm. yeah and, and it, it's interesting because I, I agree with you that you know when why pastors talk about something that they struggle with so much is 
because, you know, their experience with it. Um, and I think that's the thing, you know, if a pastor's speaking out against pornography, it's probably because A, he probably has an issue with it. And B, if anyone knows the guilt and shame and kind of the negative things that come with it, then yeah, they're going to talk about it. Where I where I kind of get confused about sometimes is that they're never transparent about their own struggle. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, and, and, and I mean, I'll, I'll use an example. You know, when I did camp ministry for many, many years, if I was talking about something that there was a struggle, there's a thing, there's a thing that we have in counseling terms called um, transference and countertransference, which basically to kind of sum it up is if there's something, if I'm counseling a client and they have something that seems to connect with something I may be struggling with or something I've been through. There's a point within that counseling relationship where how much do I reveal to this other person? Because in some ways, me sharing my story can be helpful and say, hey, I struggle with this too, you know, and and kind of help them along. At the same time, it could also be counterintuitive as well, because if I'm talking about my struggle, then eventually it now becomes about me and my struggle and the stuff that I'm dealing with. Even if it, even if I've overcome it, 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 it kind of shifts focus from helping the client to now looking at me as a beacon of hope or as a savior figure for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's like, well, I've been through everything. And sometimes that can kind of cause issue. And with Carl, and I mean, you brought up the whole thing about that couple, and it, it was so fascinating listening to that story, because it was like, they couldn't date, you know, they basically weren't allowed to date, and not only that, but then they also forced them to break up, and then they were kicked off worship team and kicked off any other of the ministries they served, and it was funny, because even the ladies, like, you know, I don't know why, I mean, really, there's nothing stopping us from saying, you know, well, well, you know, screw that. Let's just go to another church. Like they easily could have just said, we're gone. Like this is dumb, but yet they stayed because they yeah, were I so didn't understand committed. that. I didn't understand that. I'm like, well, I, but I, I just don't, I don't know. I feel like they felt like that there was a, and I want to know if a lot of it has to do if you're constantly always pushing a narrative, especially with larger churches, if you're pushing a narrative that a, a service narrative, that if you're going to be a part of this, brand or this movement, then you're going to have to put your time, money, and effort into this thing to become a global entity. Because again, you're changing the world and we're not only changing stuff in your community, but we're a global brand at Hillsong. We're a global brand. We are changing the world for Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. So even if you do something and you go, oh, like, Oh, like, hey, I messed up. And that was the crazy thing, too. Like, when they're talking, and that was the thing when Carl asked the question, oh, did you use protection? And, and like, my wife was watching it. And when the lady said he asked that question, she goes, I thought that was a weird question. And my wife goes, oh, no. Like, she, because, again, she has training as a lawyer. She knew exactly where it was going to go. And mm-hmm. when she said, yeah, it goes, oh, well, this was premeditated then. Like, this was pre-planned. So it made it even worse. If they just didn't use anything, it was like, oh, well, it was a passionate thing. But now because you had a contraceptive in play, then it's like, oh, well, this is planned. And it made it so much worse. And 
and not only that, but then the crazy thing about that story is, and later on, she's dating someone else. They decide, didn't they get married? Hey, didn't they get married, or was that another? Was, well, she. It, for, I, it was hard because watching it a second time, I thought it was the same person, but it almost sounded like it was a different person she was dating. I but feel yeah, like she dated up, somebody. They spent a year apart, then they got married, and seven years later, they got divorced. Yeah, exactly. Or, or they had sex again, and they're like, "Oh no, well, we're not going to go back to Carl again." So, you know, it's either we go back and we go through that whole shame thing again, or we go ahead and get married. And then mm-hmm. that's going to solve everything. And they got married young and it was just like seven years later, they got divorced. And it's like, and, and that kind of brings me, um, well, that brings me to a question later on, but yeah, like it's so fascinating that when someone is struggling with something. And I remember um, Dr. Marvin McMickle, who was my homiletics professor and wrote a bunch of books on preaching He even said one thing, if you are struggling with like alcohol or drugs or sex, then don't preach against it up on the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And he was very clear. Do not preach against something that you are struggling with from the pulpit, because in the end, if it comes out that you did have that, then it's going to cause a lot of damage. And man, I I would say that is true (laughs) from watching that episode that when Carl did have that fall from grace, even people who weren't part of Hillsong, who were part of his last church he was a part of, when all that news broke out, you could even tell how much it affected them when that happened on how much power and control he had over them from this, you know, purity teaching he was doing. And then next thing you know, he gets caught with an affair and resigns. And now people are hurt and mad and it caused a lot of damage, even though he's not even connected to them anymore. Um, yeah. yeah, I was thinking, like, you know, as you sent me these questions to record this episode, I was thinking about this this topic, and I'm like, you know, maybe not in a larger setting, but like, even let's say you're doing church camp or you're you're a youth pastor and you want to have a purity conversation, it, you have leaders with you like accountability people that kind of walk with you and, you know, Hey, let's talk about this before we talk about it to the people that we're going to talk about it to. And almost like a rehearsal. Right. And then you walk in, you have that conversation with your, your teenagers or the group that you're teaching or a small group or whatever that may be. Right. And um, if you do it beforehand and be like, you know, like Scott, let's say to get, we're working together at a church camp and we're having this pure, mm-hmm. purity talk. And like, you know, you're, you're saying, you know, topic X, Y, Z, you probably shouldn't have sex before marriage. Uh, and then you, you, you could turn around and be like, well, did I go too far with that? Should we like, should we nix something on the script? Should we, you know, reframe how we're wording these things, having somebody walk with you, you know, it's, it's, it's pastoral ministry one-on-one Scott. Like I, you know, I took an ethics class. You never ride in the car alone with the opposite sex. You never, leave your door. You never close your door in your office. You always have windows and all the, the doors of your offices, like mm-hmm. at, at the church building so that people can see what you're doing. Don't do yeah. stuff in the dark. Like clearly like it's, it's common sense one-on-one, right. And it's protecting yourself and protecting others. And I think, you know, to take it a step further, like I felt like Carl thought that he could get away with that because it was in such, fr- such a large crowd mm-hmm. that people weren't going to question him because there was a lot of people there. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's and I think that's wild. Like I would assume. Yeah, I mean, and I think that makes sense, because when you're in a larger setting, 
it's very easy for perpetrators to do things in a larger setting because there's so many people. People aren't going to notice. And for people to notice where if you're in a church of 50, I mean, you could do one little thing. You could, and not even something bad. Like, I mean, you can like sneeze and sound like a donkey in service and everybody's going to talk about it. Like you, there's nothing like, it's just like, it's like a epicenter of gossip in smaller churches. Like everybody knows everyone's business, but you can easily kind of get away with stuff. And not only that, but then the bigger the church, usually the bigger you have with PR teams and HR and all that. And the reason why you have that, because you have now gotten to become a big entity and you have to protect your brand, especially when you are raking in all that money, all that money. And a lawsuit would really hurt you, you know, hurt you, which is, which, I, I don't want to get, I, I won't get there. I'll probably get there later, but there's something that I thought was interesting years ago with the whole um, Willow Creek scandal with Bill Hybels and something that a Chicago Tribune reporter said, I'm like, Oh no. So anyway, let's just keep going. Did I, did what I say later? Did what I say make sense though? Like as far as like having somebody walk alongside you, especially if oh, you're yeah. an addict of any sort, like it's, it's pastoral care, pastoral ministry one-on-one where don't put your, don't put yourself as a pastor in those situations right? Absolutely. Just common sense. And like, and to take this step further, that couple that you referenced a little bit ago, as far as the, um, the, the sex before marriage thing, like Mm I, I, I have never, I mean, I've been to, um, crossroads and I've been to other, you know, larger churches and I've never, um, seen, you know, if you're struggling with this, we'd love for you, you know, we would love to pray with you, but like, we have this room where you can come and meet with the pastor. Like they did with Carl, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Like where they yeah. went backstage and they went into this room, and I'm like, that's just odd. Like, yeah. Did you find that odd? I did. Here's I found it odd. Or have you ever heard any? Have you ever heard of anything like that? I have, and okay. but I mean, I've I've heard it from like a convention standpoint when you have oh, like hundreds of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of yeah. people, and like, hey, if you need to pray. Or if you need something, you know, we have, but it's not just like one person back there that's praying with you. You have a team of people in like, like a this church, large room. Not like a so, church situation so, though, right? Yeah. But in a church situation, no, there's been times where I've had people say, Hey, like, you know, they wanted prayer, but they want to talk to me about it in private. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And then usually how I've always handled it is this service is over. I would let one of my elders know, Hey, so-and-so wants, wants me to pray with them. I'm going to be in my office. And then of course I had a window in my office. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like anything was happening. And plus I also let my wife know too, Hey, so-and-so, you know, I'm going to stick around and pray with them and everything else. And just kind of, so at least people knew what I was doing. And again, they could see, it wasn't like it was me by myself in a room in the back and nobody else was there or no one else knew about it. So that's kind of so that I thought that was a bit strange. Do I think that having that time is good? I think so, but there has to be at least another person in that room or like an elder or like a prayer warrior or or at least somebody know, hey, this is what I'm doing, here's what's happening, and then kind of go right there and even have some type of debriefing process with someone who you trust that's not gonna spread information around. Like, I don't know, like it's it, it is weird. It's weird. And I rarely see something like that. Um, so one of the things we talked about last week, um, we talked about, I think you mentioned it last week about, well, who hires a narcissist? 
<laughs> to run a church, you know, and, and you kind of say, well, usually a narcissist always hires a narcissist. So one of the things we saw in this episode is that with Carl being over at Wave Church in Virginia Beach and going to school in Virginia Beach and how he has a history of womanizing and trying to get or be with other women, women, especially while he was married. How did this get past the hiring committee? How did this get past Brian Houston as hiring this guy to be the face of the American brand of Hillsong? Mm-hmm. Like, like that, that, I mean, that's the thing that I thought was really interesting that there is a history and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we want this guy to be our face of the company. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, my immediate thought is that like Hillsong is such a large worldwide situation that literally Brian's around other, on the other side of the world. And so like, he's probably not going to see this. The other thing is that people can do a really good job of covering up who they really are. Yeah. Especially narcissists, especially somebody who has a history of that kind of mm-hmm. control and narcissism. Um, and, you know, Brian, you know, we learn more about Brian as the series goes on, but like it, it if somebody's got their own issues going on, they're probably going to be too busy struggling within their own problems to notice that something else is going on with somebody else, especially even on your team. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. And like, and two, like, I've worked on on church staffs where there, you know, we've had multiple people, right? Um, and there, there tends to be trends, and and it's the same thing in higher education. I work in higher ed, as I've explained uh, to your listeners at times. But like, there's just some uh, tends to be these uh, trends where people leave in waves, and like, it just happens. Um, you'll have these seasons of, you know, incredible growth and incredible um, leadership. And then all of a sudden this person leaves, this person leaves, this person leaves, you can get three or five people leave in the course of a year and it's okay because things happen. But like, you know, in this case, mega churches tend to be a revolving door anyway, like as far as their staff is concerned. So like who knows who knew and how, and back to the narcissistic talk, like, Maybe they didn't want people to know. They knew, but they didn't want people to know, and they just tried to cover it up as long as they could. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you yeah. feel that way too. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to when you look at a narcissist, and that was one of the things that um, Carl's um, mistress um, kind of said. It was like a narcissist always controls the narrative. You know, it was never like if she wanted him to come over, he was like, no, it was always when it was convenient for him. When he called, it was always when he called or he texts like it was always had to do. He always had to be in control. And even when there'd be arguments and stuff, you know, and she's like, you know, I don't want this. Get out and kind of kick him out. He always came back because it's not necessarily because he doesn't want to be the one that gets broken up with he wants to be the one who breaks it off not the other way around so and i think that might go with especially within church because let's say you know if there was issue if with the issues that people were coming up over at wave church 
if things were getting to the point where, you know, there's going to be some heat or blowback, even if even before the elder board or those disciplinary committees or however the governance is set up at that church, very easy. Carl could say, okay, you know, we're, we're leaving by and just out walk gracefully out and just not out gracefully. And then no one would know. And I mean, and even sometimes like I was, I was at a church one time where I found out that um, one of the former pastors was accused of having an affair. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, and it was weird because depending on who you talk to, one person who actually brought it up to me voluntarily said, Hey, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, I a hundred percent believe that this person did it because the victim came to him and his wife and basically kind of exposed everything. And then somehow I went to another elder in the church just to kind of say, Hey, I need to talk to you. I heard this. And I just want to kind of talk to you about it and get more information. And literally when I asked, the, when I brought it up, the first response I got was, well, where did you hear that from? Like, and, and once I said the name, it was almost like a sigh and then go, yeah, because the person who told me was a very reputable person. It wasn't like, and I was, and I've been curious if that was going to, if I wasn't going to find out about that or if I was going to give the runaround, but what I was, what I did get was, yeah, there was accusations. We asked the person, did you do it? They said no. And they also said that they were going to be resigning within a year uh, or basically retiring within a year. So we just, we just didn't, pers- we didn't press it any further than that. And I'm thinking, what? Like, who does that benefit? That definitely didn't benefit the person who was wounded or hurt. That benefits the perpetrator. Like, what do you mean? Well, they're, they're, reti- they're retiring or they're leaving. So we're not going to pursue it. And I'm thinking, you know, if that happens in a smaller church, I can't even imagine how much stuff gets swept under the rug or just kind of you wait till people don't make a big stink about it until it kind of disappears and how many you know how many dead wounded bodies get swept up underneath the rug and or get thrown in the closet because well because maybe this person had a had a great fan base or this person's a very respected elder or person in the church or or is the pastor and i think and i think you know when you look at everything yeah, narcissists can cover things up very well, but once something is exposed, you then have to look at the other side. Is the people who are hired by the congregation, who are voted on, what are they doing to make sure that we're making sure that church is a spirit-filled, healthy, growing place? And how can we do that when we're continuing to cover up and hide abuse and misconduct from those who are in leadership. I think we need a deep sigh after that question. Um, <laughs> like, like seriously though, like it's, um, it happens, right? Mm-hmm. It happens in every church and whether people like to um, admit it or not, 
say anything or not, staff want to leave or not, um, it happens. And um, something that I've, you know, I've been in situations where I'm like, hey, that's probably not a good idea. Why Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and And I just kind of, I try to stay away from it because I don't want to be involved. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, I think that once people get in into positions of power and th- they know, like, let's say, you know, S- Scott, you have kids, you have two kids, mm-hmm. you have rules for your kids. Your kids know the rules, right? And if they don't, you're quick as a parent to remind them this is the rules and these are why we have the rules. I think that in pastoral ministry, once people get into those uh, those uh, roles, um, the rules go out the window, and sometimes they forget like what brought them there, which obviously is a call, you know, from God and you know confirmation from the church. But like, I think that the rules go out the window, and they forget because you know either that power goes to their head, or they think that they're untouchable, or you know. Oh, maybe I could just go get high once because, you know, I, I'm a drug addict mm-hmm. or maybe it would just be once and it, it won't, you know, but on, does that make sense? But like on the flip side of that, like when pastors have, you know, quote unquote, fall, a fall from grace, um, you know, infidelity, alcoholism, you name it, a problem, you know, scandal, which is called a scandal. Um the church is quick to lash out and throw them out instead of getting the help that they need. And that pattern behavior either continues or they never get the help that they need. So um, all that to say to come like being a come full circle, like the stuff happens and um, it's not healthy and it's not okay. But like, I think we as Christ followers and believers need to uh, take the pastor title away for a minute and really offer help to those in need and those include pastors right um and to take it a step further you know what what happened to get you to that point were you not taking vacation are you burnt out are you working too hard um are you the only pastor at your church like are you doing everything is it just too much is the demands of the job too much and are you not asking for help like like those, those are all real things that happen and people really don't realize we joke about it all the time, but like people really don't realize how much stress and uh, time, energy and um, effort go into pastoring. And mm-hmm. um, if you're burned out and you just feel lost and broken, you know, it's no wonder that, and I'm not saying this is right, but like, it's no wonder that people, pastors, leaders, resort to things that can quote unquote, get them away from their problems. And some of that may involve drugs or alcohol or, or sex or womanizing or having an affair or or whatever. Right. So yeah, I, it happens and two sides of that, a, it shouldn't happen. And then B when it does happen, I think the church Christian leaders, everybody needs to be more proactive in helping that person. Not saying they should serve in a leadership role, Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that we we need to get them the help that they need if they want it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the and we touched on this earlier, and and it kind of gets brought up towards the end of this episode. But it, I I find it strange when a church leader or a pastor 
has so much control over a congregant to basically tell you some, that you need to do something and, and, and they do it. And then they, and then they kind of stay and we kind of hit on this a little bit, but I mean, we go back to the couple who was told like, Oh, well, you need to break up and you're off the worship team. So even when you look at um, Anna Crenshaw's story towards the end of this episode, where she is kind of told, well, don't say anything and holds on to this for months and months and months. And then finally, when she does go tell somebody, you know, she has like three interviews with HR and they keep asking her the same question. She's like, I told you all this. It's in my written statement. Why do you keep asking kind of the idea of, well, they just don't want to do anything with it. So they're going to kind of keep, you know, they're basically dismissing everything until, you know, her dad got involved and then they started to take things more seriously. Um, So is that normal or is that strange that a church pastor or a church leader, someone in the higher up in the church echelon can have so much influence and control over people that they can basically say, do this, or you're no, you're off the team or you're whatever. And then not only do people are like, okay, but then they continue to stay and they mm-hmm. continue to be a part of the church after they kind of go through a very bad traumatic experience. So a couple of things. I find it I... odd. Like yeah. I find it odd. <laughs> Well, I find I find the thing uh, I find it odd that people continue to stay places, you know, specifically to what you were talking about with the with the couple that had premarital sex, and then mm-hmm. they um, decided, hey, uh, we're not going to be together, but we're going to continue to come here, and we're going to continue to be a part of this church, blah 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 blah. That is super weird. I'm not uh, denying or negating that. Um, something that I, you know, when you sent this question, I looked at it, and you know. I think that there needs to be a system in place of some sort. Like let's say worship team, because I have a background in worship. Um, I don't think that one person staff member should be the end all be all decision maker. However, I think you need to have a team, whether that's staff, other people in your worship ministry, other people, um, you know, yourself, if you're the creative arts pastor or somebody, you know, create a team, right. And then have you, you know, and bring your, keep your lead pastor in, in, in the loop. Um, I was in a place uh, in the last couple of years where I was on staff. Um, there were three of us kind of in a close, you know, proximity within the worship circle, the creative circle. And then we, um, you know, obviously we're accountable to the lead pastor and um, we, we had systems in place for our creative team. And uh, if we had issues, the three of us would talk about that. And then we would come up with a resolution and then we would bounce it off the lead pastors. Uh, you know, we bounce it off the lead pastor and then um, see what he had to say. And then we would come back and make a decision. Um, they were much smaller though. Those decisions were much smaller than, you know, Hey, you had premarital sex and you need to stay apart for a year. And, you know, it was nothing to that degree. Right. Um, for us, it was like people coming to rehearsals on time. Um, people showing up on Sunday morning, if you didn't show up to rehearsal, you didn't show up to Sunday morning run through, you didn't play. Um, Mm. if you, uh, you know, if you were on the worship team, you had to audition. If you didn't audition, you know, like that, that was just the way you had to get that. That was how you could get on the audition. Like people, it was, it was a mid to large size church. And like, you couldn't just walk in and be like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a worship leader. I want to play. 
like you had to go through the audition process. We had an audition process in place. Um, you were required to use in your monitors. We use click tracks and um, loops and things like that. And so you had to be able to play with the click track. Um, you had to wear appropriate attire on Sundays. Uh, and then we had kind of a dress code in place and um, you had to be part of a life group and a small group life group. Um, we also had our own life group that met on Wednesday nights before our rehearsal. So before we played a note, we would get together, do a small devotional, have prayer together. Um, and then we would, you know, we'd pray and then we would rehearse. Um, we just had all that stuff in place. And, you know, there were a, a few times where we had issues. Um, more so like if we had like a youth led Sunday and teenagers walked in like 40 minutes late to rehearsal, obviously they're not going to mm. play on Sunday. Mm. Um, we've, we've had people, you know, that didn't show up and expected to play on Sunday. They didn't show up for rehearsal on Wednesday and then they expected to play Sunday and that's just not how it worked. And so, you know, it wasn't like they were kicked off the team. They were just replaced for that week. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just to teach you know, with teach responsibility and accountability. And if you wanted to take this seriously and you wanted to be a part of our worship team, you, you had to, you know, I guess abide by these rules, but not one Scott, not one person made the decision. I didn't make mm -hmm. a decision on my own. The creative arts pastor didn't make a decision on his own. The, the band director didn't make a decision on his own or the lead pastor didn't make a decision on his own. Like the four of us collaborated together. Mm -hmm. And if, whenever there was an issue, we all had a conversation. Yeah. Um, I've seen it where pastors and churches like will just say, Nope, you're not doing it. Like there was just no questions asked. Wow. Um, but like, and it seemed like that approach at Hillsong. I don't know if you feel that way too. It was just like, it was like an all or nothing situation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there was very, very, uh, very, very large extremes where it was like, what sex before marriage. You know, I keep coming back to that, but that's like one of the examples he used in this episode. But like, nope, you guys got to be apart for a year. That does not make any sense. I'm sorry. That just no. doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, and, you know, I have friends that play at Crossroads here in mm -hmm. Cincinnati, and they have multiple sites. And uh, my one friend, he gets like a schedule, like at the beginning of each month. And he's like, all right, you're playing keys this Sunday and this Sunday in Florence, Kentucky at this location, which is Northern Kentucky, right below Cincy. And then these two weeks you're playing in Mason, which is in Westchester. And like, here's your rehearsal, your run through. And like, you're expected to just be there at all of them and expected to like serve. And uh, it's just a different culture. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Hillsong's on a much larger scale. Yeah. Have you ever been in anything like that where uh, like there were those expectations and you guys had like a team where similar to my so experience. Yeah, so I mean, as far as a, in a church setting, not really. However, in a camp setting, I've been in. I've been. I've been a part of certain seasons at camp where there were certain expectations, um, and eventually, as we and that's the thing. Like we went when I first started being on staff at summer camp. Very, it would be very rarely that our senior high camp would be a hundred or less, like very, very small to eventually when I left, you know, there'd be times where we would have to turn people away because we would be at capacity at about 250, 275. Uh, sometimes we'd have to like kick staff out of housing to <laughs> put like 
campers in because we were just running out of room. Um, so, but there's been, there've been times I remember there was one time and I'm sure people who worked with me at camp, they will remember this. We had, we are going to have a speaker from answers in Genesis come and speak to our junior and senior high camp about creationism, why evolution's bad, blah, blah, blah. And there were a couple people on staff who hated this, who did not, was not for this at all. And basically the camp director says, well, you're going to have to sign a, what he called a covenant saying that you're not going to dispute anything. You're not going to argue with the person who's coming here. And you're just basically going to be in support of this. And if you weren't going to sign this, then you weren't going to be on staff. And I signed it because, A, I was the production tech guy. So I wasn't going to be sitting in these classes. I'm just going to be editing. So for me, it wasn't going to affect me. And no one was going to come up and talk to me about, hey, you know, ask me about questions. But some people who are going to school to become science teachers, uh, those were the ones who had the issue with it. So, uh, So other than that, like nothing in a church where, if you did something or if you, if someone did something, you basically would say, Hey, you are punished. You're this, you're that. Um, like to a very degree where they had influence and control. Cause I think if, if anybody did that more likely, they would be like, well, either a, I'm going to leave or B because summer camp was so temporary. It's like, all right, well, I only have four more weeks of this. And then, once it's done, I'm not coming back. And they just kind of would go that route. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. this is a church, a year round church that I come to every week. So even though the pastor's being, you know, kind of controlling and manipulative, I'm still going to come because, you know, this is my church family. Like, like that, I've never experienced anything like that. Like the only time I've experienced is if I've read it in books as they're talking about, you know, pastors abusing their power, (laughs) those type of books, which... (laughs) But usually they're naming like your bigger churches for that. Um, so when Carl announced his infidelity on Instagram and was one of the very first people before even Hillsong had a statement, Carl pers- on his personal Instagram page basically said, I cheated on my wife. I've, I've had a fall from grace. Please forgive me. Pray for me. We're leaving. Blah, blah, blah. Was this more of a PR move or do you think this was genuine? And then how does a, when, how does a pastor's fall from grace cause more damage and hurt to those involved and those who are maybe close to the pastor, but not necessarily within that culture? You're not going to like my answer to this because it's short, sweet and to the point, but I think, (laughs) you know, I think it was a PR move that Hillsong had to do to get Mm. Carl out of, out of there. Um, and we see this more in, in, in mega churches or larger churches, like one week you're there, something happens. And then one week you're not. And I think that's what Hillsong tried to do with Carl. Like they, they, they learned about it. They realized it was going to make him look bad and they tried to, you know, we've been using the term or phrase covered up a lot in this episode, but like they tried to cover it up. It was quick and to the point and on to the next thing, right? So that they could just keep on going as Hillsong. And yeah. so uh, it's interesting when when staff transitions happened 
you know, at small to mid-sized churches, like either one of two things, whether it's a good thing or there's a transition happening because pastors are going to other assignments or things like that. They, they tend to uh, just go right. And they give two weeks, they give a month or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what you did when you left your last assignment, how long you gave, but um, I've been places where I've done 30 days. I've given two weeks, things like that. Um, and, but if it's a bad thing, it's like, well, effective immediately you're, you're done. And, mm-hmm. uh, we don't want to tarnish the name of the church. We don't want to, uh, you know, the, the world already thinks there's scandal and we don't want, we don't want to add to that fire. So mm-hmm. here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to say. And I, I fully expect you know, the PR, HR, whoever and Hillsong, you know, lawyers probably were involved in everything. And, you know, this is what you're going to say and mm-hmm. you're done. Um, yeah. That wasn't so short, but I think I kind of expanded on that. Well, no. well I, th- <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think when Carl, because again, Carl announced it before Hillsong did. And sure. I think when Carl announced it, I think it, it was for him to save face. And I think that's kind of a thing. It's like when you fall from grace, it's but like, do you believe oh, that though? Do you believe that Hillsong didn't know? Well, I don't because, again, we, we find episode that there was a lot of information brought up about Carl. Right. And it just got ignored. And then eventually this was the one where they just weren't going to ignore it anymore. Which is what going. we find out in episode three, right? Like where he, like not that we're talking about that today, but like, you know, Brian tends to ignore that. And then when Brian's problems started to show up and arise, they'd throw the blame on Carl to cover it up. Or at least it appeared that way. They 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 kind of they kind of allude to it in this. They episode, shift the blame, they really, but they really, they really they use Carl as the scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. And they do mention that towards the end of episode two. They do mention, and that I think that's kind of the setup for episode, episode three. three, where they really dive in that deep. But yeah, I think, and here's the thing: I feel like anytime when I've had a seen a pastor, whether it's someone I knew in ministry, or if it was a church that I was involved with before I became a pastor. When a pastor leaves, and it's kind of abrupt, um, and they say, or even if it's like an infidelity or an affair or something, and they say something, it's almost like they say something, and it's, it's almost two things. First thing, they admit their fault, and they feel very sad, and they're very, like, weepy and emotional about it which part of me is it because a you recognize that what you did was wrong or b you know that basically your ministry your career is basically over and done with Mm -hmm. and you're just in a state of i'm so sad and i'm trying to plead for mercy and beg because I don't know what I'm going to do after this because I really have, I mean, especially for someone who all they've done is ministry and all they train for ministry. What are you going to do next? Because you don't have any skills. It's not like you're going to leave and become a, you know, an accountant or you're going to become a pharmacist after this. Like, like there is, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, B also, I feel like my experiences, the devil always gets blamed. It was the devil's fault. Like, literally, I remember a buddy of mine at a church. 
he was getting frustrated with this, the church that his parents went to because the pastor never would always preach these lousy sermons. He found out that the pastor Sunday morning would open up the book of Matthew, flip through the pages, point to a verse, and then that's what he'd preach on. He'd do that 15 minutes before he took the pulpit on Sunday. And then he admitted to during the week that during Monday through Friday to prep, all he did was sit in his office and watch Star Trek, the next generation on Hulu and would binge watch that. And then he would tell the church. And then he told them when he admitted this to the church, he said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, the devil got me, you know, the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that was the excuse. And yet the congregation bought that. And so kept them on as their pastor. After he basically says, I'm not even preparing anything for Sunday morning. I'm just watching TV for eight hours a day. He's going to watch Star Friday Wars. My office. I'm watching Star Wars. I'm watching Star Trek, whatever. Like, So, yeah, I don't think it was genuine. I think it's more of just trying to fan off as much fire that's on him. But the thing that, but I think the thing that really upsets me is just, when you are have such a major leadership role, how much damage it can do to people, whether it's your church or even people you may know. Like that was the thing. Like when Carl's Infidelity came out, they interviewed the two ladies from Wave Church in Virginia Beach and asked them about it. And literally the one girl, the girl who, you know, was told she had to break up with her boyfriend and quickly got married because she didn't want to deal with that shame. And it's like, it's like she was like mad. She was like swearing, like, you know, it made me bleeping mad because this yeah. guy who made me feel worthless and horrible for the things I did, he did a lot worse. He did the exact same things I did, maybe even worse if you want to compare it to a worldly measure. And yet, because he was actually married when he was out hanging out with another woman and having an affair. Um, and then even the person who wasn't chastised, she just said, you know, it's sad. It's really sad. It, 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 it still hurts. And it's like, and even like when I read books of things or even like, you know, people who may have read like a Bill Hybels book and found it very influential and how it had really shaped who they are in their ministry. And then you find out later, well, Bill Hybels is kind of not that great of a person. And you kind of find out all the stuff of that, that happens about him then you automatically get to a point where you say wow can i even can i even read his books anymore because as i read his books and read the wisdom that i got from these things there's always going to be that shade that dark kind of cloud over reading a book i mean i know people who've done that with christian artists when they've had their things, it's like, oh, well, can I even listen to this? Or I just need to get rid of all these person's CDs because it's too painful to listen to because I know kind of the other side of the curtain now. The, the, the wool has been lifted from my eyes and I'm now seeing the evil and the stuff that's happened with it. So, yeah, like I think it's a PR move and that's pretty much what we see from midway episode two all the way to the end of episode three that it's just pr hr spin the narrative spin the narrative spin the narrative cast blame find a scapegoat and it's just like it's like a machine 
that it just keeps going and people well, it's easier to do that in a bigger situation because you have more people to blame yeah more people to blame plus you have a bigger team to kind of really help you with that you walk into a mega church and scott you're like i have a question you know who runs the live stream you go to the worship leader well go talk to the production guy production guy's like go talk to the sound guy the sound guy's like go talk to the lighting person the lighting person's like go talk to the live stream production manager and like by the time you finally figure out your answer you talk to five or six people yeah exactly yeah goodness so yeah so we we find out about carl's behavior and as we find out more about all this information we find out that brian knew about this um even though brian said he did it and he tend to ignore it until the affair happened so why is it that churches seem to be more important with their brand or their reputation and that comes first than what is morally or biblically right I want to say that they tend to worry about more. They they worry more about their brand and their image um, because it's their baby. It's what they've created. Uh, then coming clean to the church at large, um, because, like you said in the last question or the last segment, like they tend to, uh, you know, point points of blame. Right? We, you know, Scott, you and I do nerd talk a lot with Jordan. And um, the Spider-Man meme where the three Spider-Men are pointing at each other, that's very much kind of the concept here where uh, I think that they're, and that's a fascinating conversation too. And we could do that for another episode, Scott, but like, it's fascinating how um, churches that grow into success stories and larger situations that are, you know, considered quote unquote mega churches, um, they tend to worry about their brand and who they are as a church more than they do about God and the fact that he grew their church and that he brought them to the dance and he um, blessed their ministry. And like, I think you get to the point with the marketing thing where you get so caught up in like, this is our brand. This is who we are as a church. And we, we tend to forget that, you know, without God and his calling, you know, and I'm not saying at one point Hillsong wasn't an anointed, blessed situation, but like we talk, I think we talked about it in the last episode, but like fame and fortune tend to go to people's heads. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, Carl and Brian, it, it was evident, you know, you're rolling around in $600 sneakers and wearing Rolexes and skinny jeans and all this stuff. And it's like, where, where are your priorities? Do you care about winning souls for Jesus? Do you care about building those relationships with people? Are you loving your neighbor? Or do you care about the latest fashion trend and how big you can grow your church? So I it's it's crazy how some churches tend to worry more about their brand and the fact that they've created this brand and this empire than they do about Jesus and the fact that they are screwing up and they don't want their churches to know that they screw up because they're more worried about the brand. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I would, and I would say that, that, you know, I think a lot of times when you look at even like the smaller churches, if something were to happen in a smaller church, the response to protect the image or the brand or the reputation of the church is basically driven mostly by fear. Mm -hmm. Because if, you know, if like an affair happened, And the only people who know are the victim, the perpetrator, and then the elder board. You know, the elder board has a choice. You know, obviously, they're going to probably let the pastor go. And that's usually 
99.9% certain that that's going to happen. B, they're not going to tell the congregation about it. It's it's almost like the pastor's going to leave. He's going to give some, well, the Lord told me to move on, which we know that's not true, and kind of bow out gracefully. And yet there's going to be a lot of people in the congregation who's going to go, wait, what happened? Why is this so sudden? And, you know, you use the God motif of saying, well, God told me to go, so I'm leaving. And some people will buy into that, but there's some people who won't because they're thinking there has to be more than what's going on here. And I feel like eventually after years and years, when something like that finally gets uncovered that, oh, it wasn't God calling that pastor to leave, that pastor left because he had an affair, then that causes a lot of damage. And the reason why you do it, because you're afraid if we were transparent and said, hey, guys, as an elder board, hey, guys, pastor so-and-so left. Here's the reason why, you know, we investigate and even just be, you know, we investigated it. We talked to everyone and we believed that it did happen. We're so sorry that it happened. And you let people know. The fear is we don't let people know because they're going to leave. Where after reading a book like a, a church called Tove by uh, Scott McKnight and Laura Brennigan, they even briefly gave an example where there is a pastor who was very transparent about some stuff that happened that the congregation didn't even know about, or there was like little whispers about it. This pastor investigated and said, hey, here's what happened. And and Mary was transparent. Every month, I'm going to give you guys an update of how we're going with this process. And basically at the end, he said, hey, we found out it did happen. And we just want to say, we're sorry. We're sorry that this happened. And we're going to make some changes and do better so that this doesn't happen again. And the thing is, is from what we see in this book, or at least with how Scott McKnight is showing it, that not only did people stay, but actually they started to grow because they were able to be transparent and open and honest about what had happened, pray for forgiveness, and then just kind of, again, move forward. So when it talks about brain and reputation, that's always the big thing. You want to protect yourself, but you're not really protecting the church. You're protecting the church as an institution. You're not protecting the church as a people, as people who come to be to learn from pastors, to hear the gospel, to be in community, to to grow in community, be the body of Christ. Like that stuff, that plays second fiddle to the name, mm-hmm. to the institution. And I think that is just, and, and basically it's idolatry. It's yeah. idolatry when 100%. you're putting your brand over people. Um, 100%. So when I, when I think back to history and one of the things that I always hear about the Protestant Reformation uh, with Martin Luther and everything, they always say, well, if you go back to Erasmus of Rottingdam and his book, The Praise of Folly, basically that whole book was the egg that Luther eventually ended up hatching, you know, century, you know, years later. So did Carl Lentz's firing set in motion all the other sins that Hillsong had covered up? Did Carl hit, did, um, did uh, Carl Wentz crack that egg <laughs> that exposed everything once he got fired? Was that the turning point for the downfall of Hillsong? I'd say it helped, but I, I would also say that there there were other things that were probably already in play because that was oh, the yeah. culture. That was the culture, and, and and Hillsong was there before, long before Carl Wentz came on board. Yeah, um, and 
and yeah, and again, again, you know, you, you talk about culture, and I think about towards the end of episode two where you see Anna Crenshaw's story, and 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 basically her her dad said, you know, this kind of is talking more not necessarily a issue problem with Carl or any other person, but it is a cultural issue, and probably one of the biggest ones was there's that a couple who is part of the Hill song in um, Kaiv who were the pastors there. And she years ago mentioned something to Brian into Hillsong saying, hey, there's an issue because here's Carl drinking, getting drunk, doing all this stuff and had some major concerns about his behavior. And yet Hillsong's just like, eh, just kind of covered it up. Even Brian made mention like, yeah, when we first started noticing issues with Hillsong, it was from this pastor and mentioned her by name. And it's like, we mentioned this long ago, which... I bring up the drinking part because I thought it was fascinating that they always talked about Carl getting drinks or when he's talking to his mistress, Hey, we could go and get some tequila or all this drinking. But yet if you went to Hillsong school and you even had a sip of wine, you were kicked off campus. Didn't they have, didn't they make them sign something? They had to sign a, they yeah. had to sign a thing. Like if you went to school, you would not do this. You would not do that. You would not do that. And there was a culture, right. but yet, you got, one of your, you got one of your lead pastors. Drinking yeah. and doing all this stuff. and Or even like with Anna Crenshaw, it's like the, the guy who was who acted sexually inappropriate with her was on staff at a Hillsong church, but yet he was getting drunk and wasted. But all these students from the college are sitting there and not even drinking. They're not even drinking at all because they know if they, drank, if they drank anything, and someone said anything, they were going to get kicked out of school. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, so really, I think we could nitpick all the cultural issues of Hillsong, but basically the major cultural issue is if you are a leader, a prestige leader in Hillsong, you will be protected. What you do, even though there's rules in place, you are above those rules. And that's one thing they mentioned something about like cult characters and the characteristics of cults. And even just my own research, that's one of the big things where you have a eccentric leader or a charismatic leader that basically puts all these rules over your followers that they can't do this, they can't do that. And yet the leader is not bound by those rules. Yeah. And that's very typical. And then the smaller churches, you struggle. Cause it's just like, they just throw you out. It's like the baby with the bathwater, right? They just throw you right out and oh, yeah. you're not protected at all. And there's no benefit of the data. It's just, Nope, you've done it. You're out. No. And that's the thing, or even you're not even protected over stupid stuff, stuff. That's not even a violation. Yes. You're not. If someone, if someone doesn't like you, they yeah, I guess that's what I meant. Say, yeah. You, you're done. You're out. And then people can make a big stink and you're gone. There's no protection, even though you did nothing wrong. And yet in a bigger church, you could do, a lot of wrong and still be protected and still continue to have your job. And if you do leave, well, you're, you're taking a leave of absence for a couple months to go get help. And then you're going to come back and be the pastor after those months. Yeah. Which is basically the way we're just going to kind of have some time to cover it up. Hopefully everyone forgets. We'll, we'll spin this. We'll put a fresh coat of paint on this. And then when, so-and-so the perpetrator comes back, they can get back in their same position and do the same ministry and say, Oh, look at all the healing and, and changes they've had. And then, you know, years later, they're, they're still doing the same stuff. 
Well, that, so, yeah. like, how do you, you know, like, once that trust has been broken, like, how, like, for example, if somebody's married and they have an affair and they work it out and they go to counseling and they get things back on the straight and narrow and that spouse can trust the spouse who cheated, mm-hmm. they work things out, that's great. But if you think about it, Scott, like, say you're pastoring a church of 200 people. Mm-hmm. And you're the pastor and you have an infidelity problem or you embezzle money or you, you have some sort of fall from grace and you walk out, you're done. Or you go through this whole restoration, reconciliation, healing, go to counseling, you know, and you come back. There's no way that all 200 of those people are either A, going to forget or B, forgive you for what that's for, for what you've done. And it's going to be it's going to be an uphill battle the whole way. There's no way. I mean, would you agree with that? Like that, like there's no way that um, if a pastor were to come back after having some sort of scandal or fall, that they could restore the goodwill with everybody. There's just no way. Cause it's just like, um, like it's one thing, right? Does it make sense what I'm saying? Like it, there, there, there's, it's, it's one thing to be married and work that out with your spouse. Cause that's one person. But if you have a church of 200 people, for example, and you, you know, embezzled a hundred thousand dollars of the church's money and you go get help and go get counseling and you go away for a while, but you come back, there's no way that the, every one of those people are going to forgive you and that your life is going to be easy. And it's just going to go back to what it was before. It's just not possible. Well, except kind of going back to our earlier question of why do people still stay after, you know, you have someone have control over them, tell them, well, you can't be on the worship team. And they still tend, why do they stay? Well, because you have influence over them. Sure. You have, you, you kind of, you paint this picture, you start off by painting this picture. And I mean, I don't want to say it's brainwashing, but basically the church is what's important. The brand is what's important. But not, but, but, but what I'm saying though, is like, if it wasn't Hillsong, like if it was just yeah, like a normal well, Yeah, if it was a normal situation. church, yeah, then those people, yeah. you want to buy the trust. But even if people don't trust it, you still stay because it has been conditioned that th- we're doing the Lord's work. This is it. And even though you have characters who are, in high leadership who look more like the devil than the Jesus. We still continue to follow because that's what we're supposed to do, because that's what God wants us to do. And that's, what's going to change the world, even though we're going to kind of be indignant about it. And Mm. I think that, or you don't want to leave because like some people say, when you leave a church like that, all those people that you hang with, all your friends, everything else, you're like excommunicated. And now your support system that you had within the church is now completely gone. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's like, well, do I stick at a church that is doing evil, but yet I'm hanging out with my small group and they love me, or I stand up for what I believe because this is spiritually and morally wrong and biblically wrong. And yet when I leave, my small group doesn't call me, invite me over, or I'm not allowed to go back because again, that's a Hillsong thing, not just, hey, you're still allowed to come over to our small group, even though you're not attending services on Sunday anymore. It's like you have been cut. You are, you are that branch. You are that healthy branch that gets cut off the sick tree and thrown in the fire instead of vice versa, where it's the dead branch that gets cut off and thrown in the fire. That's not bearing any fruit. Right. So guys, that is it for our episode, our episode of on Hillsong episode two. Again, if you have not seen the series, you can go on uh, Discovery Plus. If you don't have a subscription, Discovery Plus, 
Um, you could easily watch this within their seven day trial. It's only three hours long. It's three episodes, an hour mm-hmm. each, about 45, 50 minutes. So easily you can get through this ep- this series real quick and cancel your subscription before, or you could do what Micah did and just borrow my information to get on there <laughs> and watch it. <laughs> well, I didn't know that it was on Discovery Plus for the longest time until you told me. Yeah. So, and I was surprised because I got, I just got a Sirius XM account because they had a good deal. And then they're like, oh, by the way, for being a, a Sirius XM subscriber, here's three months of Discovery Plus. I'm like, yes, please. I'll take that. <laughs> All right. Well, Micah, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And guys, yeah, thank you so much for listening to us. And uh, next week, we'll be on with another episode to kind of finish off this discussion on Hillsong Exposed by really breaking down episode three. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. Oops,